So we've been looking at Luke's account, and I don't know if you're aware of this. Some of you, I'm sure, are, but, um, you know, only two Gospels share the nativity story with us, Matthew and Luke. Uh, Mark's Gospel begins with the, the public ministry of Jesus in Galilee, and John's gospel, of course, is a little bit different because it takes us all the way back to the be- before the beginning of time. And John's gospel does have a bit of a nativity story, but it's summed up in verse 14 of chapter 1, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's John's one uh, sentence on the nativity. But Matthew tells us about the star that appeared over the place where Jesus was born. Uh, Matthew tells us about the Magi uh, who came from the east bringing gifts to the newborn king of the Jews. And Matthew also tells us about Herod's attempt to destroy the baby Jesus. So Luke passes over all of that. But Luke as we've been following, uh, tells us about Zachariah and Elizabeth, this elderly couple who give birth, Elizabeth gives birth to John, and he becomes known in history as John the Baptist. And then Luke tells us about Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel and how The angel came to her, and then Mary's response to the angel Gabriel. And then Luke also tells us about the angelic host that announced to the shepherds that the Savior, who was Christ the Lord, uh, that he was born. So Matthew doesn't tell us any of these things, nor does he tell us about this man here, Simeon. Uh, but this is, this is reserved here for us in Luke's gospel. And we'll come back to Simeon in a moment. But let's set the stage here for what's happening. It says, when the time, verse 22, for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, when that time came, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, If you open your Bible this morning to Leviticus chapter 12, in the first eight verses, that's where the instruction is given to um, the parents of the firstborn son that they are to take their firstborn son and they are to dedicate that son to the Lord and they're to bring an offering for purification to the temple. So this would have been about six weeks after the birth of Jesus. It would have been 40 days since the birth of Jesus that Joseph and Mary would come, and they would come and they would bring an offering. And here, Luke tells us that the offering they brought was uh, that of a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, if you, if you read in Leviticus, you are allowed to bring a pair, 
of doves or two young pigeons unless you can afford to bring a lamb. So the lamb was the preferred sacrifice, but, but it, was, it wasn't all that easy to have a lamb that you could just um, you know, take and offer as a sacrifice if you were a poorer family. So the fact that Joseph and Mary offered uh, the birds rather than the lamb, it kind of gives you just a little bit of an insight into their economic situation. So they're a young, financially struggling couple who bring this child into the world. Now, remember, Jesus is born in uh, Bethlehem. And at this time, he, they, they probably still reside in that area. And Bethlehem is about three miles from Jerusalem, outside the center. And, and Bethlehem in those days, even today, Bethlehem is not a, any kind of a major significant city. Uh, but in those days, it was a very, very small village. And so they come from Bethlehem and they come to Jerusalem. And they're coming to do what the law of Moses told them to do. I would imagine that what happened next in the story completely took them by surprise. I don't think that they had any idea whatsoever that they were going to have this kind of encounter. They were simply going about the business of being good Jewish believers and going to make the sacrifice, but they encounter this man, and his name is Simeon. So we read in verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him (coughs) excuse me, by the Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. (coughs) So they come to the temple, and they're met by this. Now, I would, elderly man, I think, is, is implied here. Um, I was talking about him as being an elderly or an old, I, I'm going to say old, actually, man. Uh, and after the first service, a young kid in the congregation, he came up and he said, he said, you know, the passage never tells us how old he was. How do you know he was an old man? I said, well, he was waiting to die. So you figure, you know, he probably, <laughs> probably wasn't that young. So no, the text never actually tells us the age of Simeon. But I think the context implies that he is old. And the next person that's talked about, Anna, that we read about, um, we're told that she's 84 years old. So I, I think we're talking about Something similar here. But what does that say about him? It says he's righteous, he's devout, 
and he's waiting for the Messiah. Now, at this time in the history of the nation of Israel, you had, of course, Roman occupation. So the Romans are in charge, and the Jews live under this, this Roman dominion. And you have the priesthood who rules the people directly along with this king named Herod who, who's part Jewish, but he's more Edomite, but he's really more Roman, but he's really just more for himself. He's a tyrant. And the majority of the people are just living life, trying to get by, vaguely hoping that someday a Messiah is going to come. We heard there's going to be a Messiah. We hope he comes and throws the yoke of these Romans off of us. That was the mentality of most people at the time. Very few people were, as Simeon is described, righteous and devout and waiting for the consolation of Israel. So the implication here with, with Simeon is that he's not just, yeah, yeah, maybe there's going to be a Messiah that comes sometime, and that'll be great, but hey, got to get about business as usual. No, he is a man who is committed to this. He's a serious believer. He's believing that these promises that have been given over all these centuries, he's believing that these things are true, and we read that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would come before he died. So this is the man that approaches Joseph and Mary when they come to dedicate Jesus to the Lord. Something, just a, a, a side note that I find very interesting. It tells us here, it says uh, the Holy Spirit was upon him. It says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 27, it says he was moved by the Spirit. Here's the interesting thing. Um, the Holy Spirit, the, the words Holy Spirit appear in the Old Testament only a few times. I, I think two, it might be three, but very few times throughout the Old Testament. Now, of course, the Spirit is spoken of in the Old Testament, um, most frequently called the Spirit of the Lord. But the term Holy Spirit is only used, like I said, just a couple times all throughout the Old Testament. But here in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, suddenly the Holy Spirit begins to be referenced over and over again. And, and here's, here's the thing I want us to see before we move on. I want us to see that this man, uh, Simeon, this old man, Simeon, who more than likely wasn't recognized as any kind of a spiritual leader or spiritual figure at the time, this man has a connection with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in his life. And it 
probably was just during times of prayer as he would be praying and crying out for God to come and, and fulfill his promises. At some point in time, it was revealed to him by the Spirit that he was going to see the Messiah. This would be amazing. You know, sometimes people want us to think that we shouldn't expect God to speak to us about our lives. And we certainly shouldn't expect God to speak to us about you know, things that are beyond us, things that we don't have any control over. Like, for example, should we really believe that God spoken and said he's going to pour out his spirit in a great way in these days that many are going to come to faith, that there's going to be a great work of the spirit throughout the world before Jesus returns. Um, is it possible that God's really spoken that to somebody? Well, it surely is possible. And I think that we would, all of us, do much better if we were more open to and expectant of God speaking to us in those kinds of ways. So Simeon was. He had received that promise. The Spirit is upon him. And verse 27 says then that he was moved by the Spirit. And he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required... Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Now think about this. Here's a young couple. <coughs> they come to the temple. They have a six-week-old baby. And before they can get to the priest and you know, get, get to the, the process, they're, they're met by this old man and he takes the baby. How many mothers are in here? How many of you would give your baby, your six-week-old baby, to an old man who comes up to you at church and says, here, let me, let me have that baby? <laughs> I wonder what Mary thought at that moment. I know what Cheryl would think. When we're, our kids were little, like, you were not going to get the baby out of her hands. She wasn't going to let that happen. But obviously, there's something going on here. And so the parents, Mary specifically, gives, gives the child to Simeon. Now, what Simeon does now is absolutely amazing. So he takes the baby in his arms. And he praises God and he says this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. Wow. Can you imagine what Mary and Joseph would have thought at this moment? Now, remember, 
all that had happened up until this point, from the time that Gabriel visited Mary in Nazareth to the fact that she went to the hill country of Judea to meet with Elizabeth, her relative, and then Elizabeth, her older relative, in her old age, became pregnant and had a son, and Zachariah was struck dumb because he didn't believe the angel, and the birth of Jesus came, and these shepherds showed up and said, the, the angels told us to come. All, all of this was happening in a very small circle of people that were just ordinary people. So think about that. That, you know, we read these things and we know the truth about what's going on. And we look back and we think about how amazing it was. And it was amazing. But all of this happened within just a very small group of insignificant people in the bigger picture of what was going on in the culture and the world at the time. Oh, this little priestly family, this old, old priest and his wife, they, you know that, wow, she's having a child at this age. That's amazing. And somehow, I don't know, he, he can't talk. I don't know, he said like he saw an angel or something. And then he, the baby comes and he bursts out and says, oh, his name is John, and then he begins to prophesy. But it's, it's a relatively small group of people. Now, of course, to have an angelic host appeared, I mean, that's amazing, but he appears to shepherds. Just a, a small group of men out in a field at night. It doesn't tell us, although I think sometimes in our mind we get the picture like the whole night sky lit up and everybody in the whole country saw this amazing uh, appearance in the night sky of this brightness doesn't tell us anything like that so this is what i'm getting at all of these things that are happening are god reminding mary and joseph of the truth of everything that's happened to them up until this point that this has been Indeed, everything that they think it has, but are probably still wondering, is this all really happening? Is this really true? Could this really be? And so here comes this old man, and he takes this child, and he basically says, God, you can let me die right now because I've seen the Savior of the world the savior of the world. This baby is the savior of the world. Who would have thought that that was even, what, the baby's the savior of the world? Now, the Jewish people, of course, they had a messianic expectation, but when you read about the expectation that the Jews had of the Messiah, nobody was really thinking in terms of him being a baby. I mean, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, yeah, but, but when you think about the Messiah, you think, in their mind, they're thinking about a full-grown king, a powerful king, a great warrior for God who's going to obliterate all of the enemies of Israel. That's their thinking. 
But Simeon's holding a six-week-old little boy and saying, this is your salvation. This is your salvation prepared in the sight of all the nations. And then he says this. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This is what this baby is. This baby is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Now, this is where it just becomes so fascinating when you see what Simeon says here. Because Simeon is... The things that he's saying are completely out of sync with the thinking of the people and the experts, especially at the time. He's completely out of sync. So, going back to Simeon, just as a person for a moment, was he a priest? Didn't appear to be. Uh, was he a recognized prophet or holy man? Didn't seem that he was. Um, was he simply a faithful believer, truly known only to God up until this moment? That, that seems like the case. No one really knows, but his prophecies were extraordinary. Extraordinary in the sense <coughs> that they are completely out of sync with the messianic expectation of the times and very much in sync with the messianic picture painted by Isaiah and Zechariah and others hundreds of years before. See, this is the interesting thing about this man, Simeon. And I think when we look at him, he really does, he, he, he really does fall into the line of the, of the prophets of old. Because when he says about the child, he is a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. You know, no Jew was thinking at that moment in time that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to give light to the Gentiles. Nobody was thinking that. As far as the Gentiles go, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to destroy the Gentiles. They're the enemies of Israel. And he's going to set up the Davidic kingdom. That's the way they were thinking at the time. But Simeon, he says, no, he's going to be a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. And in the Old Testament itself, of course, there were many passages. The next part is, and the glory of your people Israel. There were many passages that talked about the, the Messiah being the glory of the people of Israel. The ancient rabbis had a saying that the world was not created except for the Messiah. So that was it. He's, he's going to be the glory of Israel. Yes. <coughs> but what they omitted was he's going to be also the savior of the Gentiles. They, they had excluded the Gentiles. But God didn't because, of course, God is the creator of all people. And so here we see with Simeon, he is speaking in that true prophetic vein of what the previous 
prophets had said. And then it becomes even more obvious when it comes to the specific prophecy about the child. And so look what he says. Verse 33, the child's father and mother, they marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. Wow. This would have been a shock to Mary. See, nobody knew at the time. Nobody knew about the sign that will be spoken against part of the prophecies. Nobody understood that the Messiah would be, first of all, the, the one who suffers. Now, the prophets wrote about it, but they didn't understand it. So when Isaiah wrote, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripe we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord, uh, we've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to crush him, making his soul an offering for sin. Isaiah prophesied that. The people read it. Nobody understood it. <coughs> but this is the kind of thing that Simeon is prophesying. He's hearkening back to the ancient prophets. The child is destined for the fall. No one thought of that. The fall of many in Israel. Why would people in Israel fall? Well, because, again, the prophets of old had said, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And this is what happened when Jesus came. Because Jesus was not the Messiah that they had invented in their mind, they stumbled over him. Because he was a Messiah who came and suffered. Because he was a Messiah who said that, first of all, their sins had to be forgiven. And the only way their sins could be forgiven is for him to be rejected and to suffer and die. They didn't want that Messiah. <coughs> Paul the Apostle, maybe you remember early on in our study of 1 Corinthians, remember what he said about the Jews and the gospel? He said, for the Jew, the gospel is a stumbling block. It stumbled them. This child is destined for the fall. And so the majority of the nation stumbled at Jesus, but he is also destined for the rising again of many. And so throughout this long history now that has gone on 2,000 years between the first coming of Jesus and he's still yet to come again, the nation of Israel has rejected him and stumbled over him. But there is a time in the future when that will change. And Zechariah prophesied in the 12th chapter, the 10th verse, and 
speaking of, of uh, the rising again of many in Israel, he said that there's coming a time when they, the house of Israel, <coughs> this is God speaking, when they will look upon me, whom they have pierced, and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And in that day, there shall be a fountain opened in Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So you see, that's the rising again. Many fell, many stumbled. But others will rise. They will be raised up when they embrace the long-rejected Messiah. Now, he is a sign that will be spoken against. And this is true, not just in the Jewish context, but we know that this would be true um, beyond that. When the Apostle Paul was, uh, when he came to Rome, and he was met by the elders of uh, the Jews in Rome, and he, he came presenting the gospel to them, they, this is what they said to him. They said, um, yeah, we're interested in this. Tell us about this because we, we don't really know about it, but all we've heard is that um, basically they just said, we, we just heard bad things about this message of, of Jesus the sign that would be spoken against. And if you think about it, again, not just in that context, but if you think about it today, think about the near universal rejection of Christ. And I say the near universal because it's not complete, but I mean, let's face it. Think of the Jews themselves still to this day. Think of the Muslims. Think of the Hindus, the Buddhists, the cultists, the deists, the theists, the moralists, the atheists, the agnostic, the secularist, the humanist. All of those groups of people, all people identify with all of those things. Every single person who identifies in any one of these categories would be a person who would be opposed to Jesus. They're, the system that they're in, the beliefs that they've embraced, are beliefs that are in opposition to Jesus, a sign that will be spoken against. And then, of course, you... You can find people that probably wouldn't fit into any of those categories, just your everyday average person who's like, hey, whatever, <laughs> you know, Jesus, yeah, I don't care. And then they stub their toe and he's the first name that comes out of their mouth. But in the heart, there's opposition. But listen to this. This is, this is the fascinating thing here. Child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. See, here's the thing that we need to understand. That one's attitude toward Jesus Christ reveals the true state of the heart. One's attitude toward Jesus Christ reveals the true state of the heart. Now, there are many people that appear to be fine people, good people, 
kind people, magnanimous people, generous people. And so, from all appearance, you would think that, wow, you know, that's a good person. And how many times do we even say this about people? Like, well, you know, they, they got a good heart. I mean, sometimes it's even a person who's, <laughs> you got to look at the heart because from the outward, you can't really get any hint whatsoever that they're a good person. Ever know anybody like that? Or anybody ever tell you anything? You know, you might see a person and you think, man, well, this person, well, gee, avoid them at all costs. And somebody else goes, oh, no, no, you know, they, they really have a good heart. I know it's hard to see, but. Well, maybe so, but here's the thing. Here's the big question. What do you think about Jesus Christ? That's what reveals the true state of the human heart. Now, of course, there are plenty of people who would say, well, I believe Jesus was, a, he was great. He was a great man. Okay, that's good. What else? Well, I don't know, you know. Oh, he was a great teacher, maybe, you know. He was a great moral example. Jesus was a sage. Okay? What else? Maybe like Albert Einstein. He said this. He said, I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can deny the fact that Jesus existed, nor that his sayings are beautiful. Oh, man, Dr. Einstein, that is phenomenal. Wow. And then there's a whole other group of folks that would just say, you know, I'm with the Doobie Brothers. Man, Jesus is just all right with me. Remember that song from the 70s? If you don't, you didn't miss anything. But, but here's the question. Dr. Einstein, that is amazing what you said about Jesus. What do you think about his death for your sins on the cross? Oh, no, no. I, no that, of course, we, we don't go in for that. You see, people will appear to be cool with Jesus as long as it's their version of Jesus. But the biblical person of Jesus offends. <clears throat> and what is the offense? The offense is, Jesus tells me I'm a sinner and I need a savior and I can't save myself. And I'm so sinful that somebody actually had to die for my sins because my sins brought the sentence of death on me. Oh, I don't like that message. I don't believe in that Jesus. Oh, forget that. No, I, I like the other Jesus, you know, the, the teacher, the philosopher Jesus. Well, that's uh, imaginary Jesus. The real Jesus is the one who died. And that's why Simeon said finally, looking at Mary, speaking specifically to her, he said, a sword will pierce your own soul as well.
this child, the Savior of the world, he's destined for the falling and rising of many and for a sign that will be spoken against that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed and your soul will be pierced with a sword. And think of how true those words were. How must Mary have felt when she heard about uh, her son being rejected by the people of the day? When he went to Nazareth where he was brought up and they attempted to, to push him off a cliff. Many times they attempted to stone him. The leaders were plotting to kill him and finally he was crucified and Mary was right there at the foot of the cross watching the whole thing. And a sword was piercing through her heart. But this is really what it was all about from the very beginning. From the very beginning, this was the, the purpose. C.S. Lewis said that in regard to Christmas, he said that this day, the, the day of the birth of Jesus, he said this is the central event in the history of the earth. For this is what the story has always been all about. The birth of Jesus is the central event in the history of the earth. Why? Because the birth of Jesus made a way for the death of Jesus. And at the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the world was reconciled back to God. And now anyone and everyone who will receive Jesus for who he really is, not who we have imagined him to be, but anyone, everyone who receives him for who he really is, he is indeed the savior of the world. He's our savior. And that's why we're here today. To just be reminded of these amazing amazing events. Now, as I said earlier, Simeon, he becomes uh, a bridge from the old prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah. He becomes now the bridge to the new covenant and to John the Baptist who will come some 30 years later and begin to proclaim, uh, prepare the way of the Lord. And so Simeon and then Anna, who were just told regarding her, that she was 84 years old. She never left the temple and she saw the child and she spoke about him to all those who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. These two old, old people are 
I mean, really, you think about it, they're like the first evangelists. They're proclaiming the truth about Jesus. And so, the incarnation, Christmas time, God coming into the world, the Word being made flesh and dwelling among us. Ultimately, so, as I said, he could die. And our sins could be forgiven, and we could be reconciled to God, and we could live on in fellowship. And then, as uh, Simeon said, the day will come when the nations will rejoice. And so, we sing that that well-known Christmas song, Joy to the World. And Joy to the World is funny because it's become a Christmas song, but you know, it's actually about the return of Jesus and the establishment of the kingdom. But it's okay that it's a Christmas song because that's what Christmas is. It's the first step toward that ultimate end. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Let heaven and nature sing. And then all of the things that happen as the world is transformed and brought back to the way God intended it to be, that's what it's all about. And thank God. Thank God that Jesus came. Now, as we close today, I'm going to take a radical shift here. And I want us to think about the whole story. Here's our fifth study in our Advent series. But I want you to think with me back over the whole story. And as we do that, I want us to see what uh, N.T. Wright spoke about here, how, how when Jesus came, his very coming, it did, did many things, but one of the things it did is it began to draw all different kinds of people together for the work of the kingdom. Let me read to you from N.T. Wright. He said, as we've looked at Luke... <clears throat> telling the story of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, perhaps you have found someone in the story that you've identified with. We have met the older couple, surprised to have a child at last. We have seen the young girl, even more surprised to have a child so soon, and her husband coming with her to the temple to offer the specified sacrifice. In this passage the passage we're looking at right now, we have the old man and woman waiting their turn to die, worshiping God night and day and praying for the salvation of his people. Luke wants to draw readers from every age and stage in life into his picture. No matter who or where you are, the story of Jesus from the feeding trough in Bethlehem to the empty tomb and beyond can become your story. In becoming your story, <coughs> it will become your vocation. 
For some, it will be active, obvious, working in the public eye, perhaps preaching the gospel or taking the love of God to meet practical needs out in the world. For others, it will be quiet, away from the public view, praying faithfully for God to act in fulfillment of his promises. For many, it will be a mixture of the two, sometimes one, sometimes the other. Mary and Joseph needed Simeon and Anna at that moment, and Simeon and Anna needed them, had been waiting for them, and now thanked God for them. The birth of Jesus had already begun its work of drawing people of all sorts into the new worship and fellowship that God had brought into the world. So, on this last Sunday of the year, on this last Sunday of the year, in light of who Jesus is and all that he's done and all of these wonderful prophecies and all the glorious past history and all the promises that we await, let's rededicate ourselves to following Jesus into all that he has for us in the years to come. This is the time. You know, we, we, come to, we come to this time every year, right? We come to the final week of a year. And most of us are familiar with New Year's resolutions, things we're going to do that we didn't do this year and things that we're not going to do that we did do this year. And so on and so forth. And yes, I'm starting another diet. Of course I am after yesterday. <laughs> but whatever those things might be, they're fine. But here's the most important thing. Just dedicating ourselves fully to the Lord. There's a new year. God's gracing us. He's blessing us with a new year. We don't know what the year will entail. If it's anything like the last couple years, it'll be challenging. I'm sure it'll be challenging regardless. We're just living in a time when it's a challenging situation almost everywhere. But... Again, what, whatever the case is, we want to be step in step with Jesus as we go into 2022 and not just go into it, but as we go as far beyond it as the Lord will take us. And, and that's what these people remind us of, 84-year-old woman. And I'm sure Simeon was right up there with her age-wise. But man, they were dedicated. They were seeking the Lord. They were still believing the promises of God and they weren't letting up at all. As a matter of fact, Simeon was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep praying and waiting and trusting uh, because I know I'm not gonna die until I see the Lord's Messiah. He told me that. I believe that. Now, 
<coughs> had Simeon told somebody else that, they might have said, oh, that's crazy. The Lord didn't show you that. You're old, you're senile, you know, you just think God's showing you that. And, you know, maybe as you think about things that God's put on your heart, things that you are sensing the Lord would, would say to you, and he's calling you, and he's saying, come and walk with me and follow me closely and seek me more uh, intensely than you have before. And, you know, somebody might say, oh, no, come on, that's not going to happen. I mean, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. It, that, you're, you're just imagining that. I don't think you are. I think you should go, go with that. Go with that leading of the Spirit. And so let's do that. Let's do that. And as we finish up today, as we just sing a couple final songs today, just again filling our heads with the beautiful melodies and the knowledge of, of what this time means, would you just say, Lord, I want to be part of this story, like a real part of it. I, I want to be in the story, not just a prop somewhere. I want, to be, I want to be in it and see what the Lord will do in the days ahead. I know you won't regret it. Yes. So we thank you, Lord. Thank you that another year is before us and your grace is upon us and you're still working. And Lord, we look back at how precisely you fulfilled your your prophetic word through Isaiah, through Daniel, through Zechariah, how precisely you fulfilled your word through Simeon. And Lord, we have every confidence that you will complete all that you have promised. And Lord, I pray for each and every one here in this room, anybody listening on the radio, wherever. Lord, we want to be part of the story. We want to be in our place. We want to do our part. We want to fulfill your will. So help us. Help us, Lord, in the days ahead to walk closely with you. Help us to learn from the example of these precious saints of old. And may we do likewise, we pray in Jesus' name.